season. And secondarily, because the story there is very much what we are going through at the moment, where we have uh, enemies who went to the civil authorities to try to destroy this church, uh, as someone in the book of Esther tried to destroy all the Jews, Mordecai in particular, but all of them. And then uh, Esther and Mordecai went to the civil authorities themselves afterward uh, to put forth their petition before the civil authorities. So uh, there's a similar story going on here uh, as what was there. Now before we get directly to the book of Esther, I want to tie some things together here to show us that the book of Esther is indeed a timely book for now and was written for now, even as the whole Bible was written for those upon whom the ends of the world should come. That's us. The end time New Testament church uh, is what it was written for. So that includes Esther. Now there are those among scholars and those even in the church who have said, well, Esther really shouldn't be in the Bible because the name of God is not anywhere found in it. Uh, Esther asked the Jews in her circle to pray, or not to pray, but to fast for three days. Now, who did Jews address when they fasted? God. But it doesn't say that specifically, so people say, well, what? Now, I think as we go through this story, we're going to see that God was orchestrating the whole thing. But I think I can see a reason whereby he did not mention his name in particular in the book. And that reason is that this was a secular fight between Haman and the enemies of the Jews and the civil government. Then it came as a petition of the Jews themselves to that same civil government for relief. That government did not fight their battle for them, but it gave them the authority to fight and destroy their enemies. Now, with that background, let's understand when this is talking about. And I want to go to Daniel 9 first. Remember the story in Esther is starts out with King Ahasuerus, who is having a banquet for all the lords and ladies of the 127 provinces that he ruled over. <clears throat> now here in Daniel 9, verse 1, it says, In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus of the seed of the Medes. The scholars argue over whether this should be Darius or Cyrus here. Uh, there was a joint reign between a Darius and a Cyrus there for some time among the Medes and the Persians. And then Cyrus took over as the sole king or sole ruler of the Medes and Persians. So there is a certain amount of confusion among Old Testament scholars about who this is talking about. Uh, and they th say that right here, it possibly should be Cyrus. Well, let's see what the Scripture says uh, within itself to see 
of whom this is speaking. Now it does say that this Darius here, or Cyrus, whichever it is, is the son of Ahasuerus, whom Esther the Jew married in the book of Esther. Now I'm going to thumb back to Ezra 1.1. It says, Now in the first year of Cyrus king of Persia, that the word of the Eternal by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Eternal stirred up the spirit of Cyrus king of Persia. So here it's speaking of the first year uh, in Ezra, and it's speaking in the first year in Daniel 9. And it uses Cyrus here in Ezra very clearly. And the name of the son of Ahasuerus and Esther was Cyrus. Now let's go on down in, in Daniel 9. He says, In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by reading, by books, the number of the years whereof the eternal of the the word of the eternal came to Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish seventy years in the desolation of Jerusalem. Now, if we go back where we did last week to Jeremiah twenty-five, we found that it was in the first year of Nebuchadnezzar that that took place. So, this is in the first year of the man who replaced Belshazzar, who was the son of Nebuchadnezzar. You remember, uh, Nebuchadnezzar was not there. Belshazzar took over, and then he had a feast and drank out of the uh, cups of the temple in chapter 5 of Daniel. He made a great feast to a thousand of his lords and drank wine before the thousand, and he used the gold and silver vessels which his father had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem. Now, that's an affront to God, and it's an affront to the Jews. And in that same hour, uh, a finger wrote on the wall, and that very night, he died. Uh, and it was Cyrus who took over, verse 31 of Daniel 5. And Darius, or Cyrus the Median here, took the kingdom, being about 62 years old. So Ahasuerus and Esther had a son named Cyrus. <clears throat> and by the time this occurred in Daniel... He was about 62 years of age. So in the same generation. Now, Jeremiah is the one that Daniel ties this prophecy to, right? Because that's all he had at that time was the book of Jeremiah, which talked about the 70 years of captivity. Now, Christ referred to the same thing in Matthew 24, but he referred it back to Daniel. Why? Because Daniel was written after Jeremiah, and Christ said that the things that Daniel wrote would be the things that would occur in Matthew 24 in regards to uh, the gospel being preached around the world, of the tribulation coming, of the abomination being set up in the temple of God. So Christ referred back to what Daniel said here in chapter 9. If you go on down in chapter 9... When Daniel heard this, he knew the 70-year captivity was over. He, he read, had read that in Jeremiah, and he had read all of the information in Jeremiah about it. Jeremiah 25, Jeremiah 29 and 30, and all that went with it. And he saw there that at the end of 70 years, Babylon would be destroyed, which it was, and Cyrus took over. 
he also saw that God would begin to bless his people again at the end of the seven years. So to Daniel, this was a very troubling and difficult time, and he was right in the middle of it. He had been an advisor to Nebuchadnezzar for nearly 70 years because he was a young man in the first year of Nebuchadnezzar when he and his friends were taken to Babylon, which we read last week in Daniel 1.1. Third year of the reign of Jehoiakim came Nebuchadnezzar, and it's mentioned as his first year there in Jeremiah. So Daniel had been there 70 years under both Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar, And then at the end of 70 years, Cyrus took over. Now Cyrus was the son of Ahasuerus and the son of Esther, of the book of Esther again. Now Cyrus looked around and saw who Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar had had as his leading uh, vassals or superintendents or directors or whatever you wanted to call them princes, and he saw Daniel there. Well, Daniel was a Jew, and Cyrus was half-Jew, and he had gone through the situation, or knew the history of it, of Ahasuerus and his mother, and he had heard the story of how Mordecai and Esther, his mother, had worked with each other and saved the Jews. And he was only 62 years old at this time, so that story was fresh in the mind of Cyrus, who had heard the story as a boy. So whom did he appoint over the kingdom? Daniel the Jew. Now, how did Cyrus know that he was to do what it says there in Ezra 1, that is, Proclaimed that he would build Jerusalem, in that case the temple first, and then Jerusalem. Isaiah 44 and 45 say that the end time Cyrus will have to do with both the temple and Jerusalem and their rebuilding. So, how did he know this? Well, he knew the story of the past from his parents, and I suspect that Daniel told him, <clears throat> you know, I just read the book of Jeremiah, and uh, it said in here that you're supposed to build a temple in the wall of Jerusalem. And Cyrus says, oh yeah? Well, I, maybe he didn't know that. But Daniel knew it, because he had just read Jeremiah, and he read the whole story. So he probably took the book of Jeremiah out and read it to Cyrus, and said, here's what you're supposed to do. He may have read Isaiah 44 and 45 to him and told him, this is what you're supposed to do. Because it says there, Cyrus would say, the temple in Jerusalem must be built. So this was very fresh on Daniel's mind. And when he read it himself and realized the incredible political situation that was going on there with the change of governorship of Babylon being destroyed and the Medes and Persians coming in, And what would happen to his people, the Jews? He was alarmed. So it says he immediately began to fast and to pray and to ask God to give him answers. Well, God did give him answers. And then there's the 70 weeks prophecy at the end of uh, 
Daniel 9, where it says it will wind up with the abomination of desolation being set up at the end of the building of Jerusalem here in the end time. So the story of Ahasuerus and Daniel and Jeremiah are all combined here with Christ's proclamation in Matthew 24 that the abomination would be set up in the end time just prior to the Great Tribulation. So we're already seeing that Esther and Ahasuerus are in the background of the story of the end time. Clear? Right there in the book of Daniel, which is, of all books, an end time book, and the only one that was completely sealed until the time of the end, because it had nothing to do with the original Antiochus Epiphanes uh, sacrificing a pig on the altar. That may have been a type, yes. But Christ said after that in Matthew 24 that this would be done at the end time. So the whole thing here is an end time prophecy, as is Jeremiah's. We'll see in a little bit again. Jeremiah says you'll understand these things about the 70 years in the end time, in the latter days, is when you'll understand them. Jeremiah 30, 24, I believe it is. We may read that here in a minute. Okay, Uh, now let's understand the setting of the book of Haggai and Zechariah again as well. You remember, as we've gone over many times, Haggai was written during the second year of Cyrus. It says Darius, but it's Cyrus. Zechariah began in the eighth month of the second year of Cyrus. Now, what are Haggai and Zechariah about? They're about building the church, Jerusalem, and the temple. A physical and a spiritual temple, as we've seen uh, very clearly in the past. And they are end-time books because they talk about Joshua and Zerubbabel, who are the two olive trees of Revelation 11. So, Revelation 11 brings Haggai and Zechariah forward into the end-time, okay? The story of Haggai and Zechariah is an end-time prophecy of the two witnesses, the remnant church, who come to build the latter temple at the very end. So, it is brought forward into the New Testament, into the book of Revelation. And this all centered around the first and second year of Cyrus, who had just taken over as king of the Medes and Persians, and was sending Ezra to build the temple, and Nehemiah would later go to build a wall of Jerusalem. Ezra and Nehemiah combined did what Cyrus said had to be done in Isaiah 44 and 45 that Daniel had probably told him from reading the book of Jeremiah. It obviously was very fresh on Daniel's mind, and he says, I understood. I read the numbers in Jeremiah, and... It fits. Babylon just got destroyed. Cyrus just took over. Therefore, it must be time to build the temple. That's your job. Aren't we in the same position today? Aren't all these things about to happen again? Now, let's go. 
with that connection to Zechariah 1 again. I've been here a lot lately, but these all tie together, and I see it better today than I did even last week. Here in Zechariah, second year of Cyrus, the king of the Persians, connected with Daniel and Jeremiah and with Christ in the book of Revelation, okay? In time. These are the two olive trees. Now, here he's talking about a man standing down in the valley in the myrtle trees. We've got some interesting information here in a moment about the myrtle trees. But let's go on down for the moment. And he asked about mercy on Jerusalem after these 70 years in verse 12. So, isn't it time for mercy on Jerusalem? Mercy on the church. Hebrews 12, 22 and 23 shows the church and Jerusalem are interchangeable in Zion. So here again, Zechariah is speaking of the end of the 70 years. Not the middle of it, not the first of it. Because remember, Revelation 11 says that this is a story of Joshua and Zerubbabel and the two witnesses, which is at the end of the 70 years. Not at the beginning of it, but the end. In which God will bring the remnant and bless them to build the temple and to build Jerusalem. So it's all tied together in the end time, and it's right at the end, because God didn't say here, as Jeremiah did, oh, this is just the beginning of it, go build houses and live in them. Herbert Armstrong did that, I remind you, in 1947. He began to assemble the builders of houses, he began to assemble the materials, he began to form crews, if you will, by educating young men on how to build up churches, uh, what to, how to go about it, and sent them out all over the country and ultimately all over the world to build houses, and that lasted 70 years. Now, the 70 years, if you go from 1947 when the college started, that would end in 2017, 70 years later. And we're about to see a time when Ephraim is destroyed and those houses will be taken away. Isaiah 5 says all the houses that were built will be taken away. That's mentioned in Zephaniah as well. They'll build houses and not live in them. Zephaniah 1 where it talks about the crash coming. So all these church houses and physical houses that we've built in this country are going to be taken away. Well, isn't that what happened here? The Medes and Persians came in, the captivity was over, and the Jews could go back where they belonged. At the end of 70 years in Zechariah, the remnant is called and can come back to Jerusalem and build the temple in Jerusalem. So the 70 years of Jeremiah, Daniel, Matthew 24, and Ezra all come together at the end with the two witnesses and the remnant. That's why they're mentioned here, and we already saw in Daniel that it was at the uh, first year of Cyrus that that edict was given to rebuild. And we saw that it confirmed in uh, Ezra 1.1. So, Zechariah and Haggai were written in the second year of Cyrus, same time frame, so this has to be the end of it because when Cyrus took over, it was the end of it. No, it took them a while. The decree was given in uh, the first year of Cyrus 
but they had to gather up all the materials. They had to, to pack, to go. Uh, the Bible says in Ezra, I believe it's Ezra, that it gave them four months travel time. So they could have easily, by the time they got settled over here, going from Mesopotamia to this area, it could have easily been the second year of Darius or Cyrus when they actually got organized here and got started. And God decrees here that right after the first year of Cyrus, the two witnesses and the remnant are to gather together and to begin to build the temple. So shortly after, Babylon falls. Right? And Babylon's about to fall again. We've already seen that 430 years after this country was started in 1587, 430 years later is 2017. 430 years, and it says at the end of that 430 years in Ezekiel 4 that this nation and Israel would be destroyed. So shortly ahead of us is this destruction. When you combine Isaiah 7 and 8 and those two signs there, it shows that it has to happen before 2019 is very old, before 65 years from 1954 has been finished. And after Christ reveals himself to his church, remember Malachi 3 says he will come suddenly to his temple. In one day our sins will be forgiven and he will come to us. And it says in the solemn day there at the end of Zephaniah we read last week, which very well could be Passover day. So this is all tied to the end time church, as is the story of Esther and King Ahasuerus through their son Cyrus. So the background for what we are dealing with today is here, or we'll see in the book of Esther. Now before we go there, first of all, let's go to Jeremiah 29 for a moment. We were here last week, but there's a few other things I want to point out that we didn't look at last week. There's a lot in here. Jeremiah, uh, well, no, wait a minute. Before we go there, we're still in Zechariah 1. I wanted to cover one other thing there, which is very, very important. Uh, Below the 70 years that it's talking about here, we have the next episode, the next event to happen. He says, I'm jealous for Jerusalem and Zion, And I'm going to take care of it. Good and comfortable words. And my house will yet be built in it, says the Eternal. Verse 16. Uh, And he will yet comfort Zion and shall yet choose Jerusalem into 17. Then we have a few verses here which introduce another element of the situation. God is saying the 70 years is up. And I'm about to start blessing uh, with the gathering of the remnant. And we'll see the remnant being gathered down in chapter 2. But before, now at the end of the 70 years, and before the gathering, we have this other episode of something else in here. Verse 18. I lifted up my eyes, and behold, four horns. And I said to the angel that talked with me, What be these? Horn represents on an animal power. Uh, the power to hook, to gore, to destroy, to hurt. 
And he answered me, These are the horns which have scattered, have hurt, have destroyed, have made a mess of Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. So here are four horns who have caused trouble. Okay? And then he showed me four carpenters. Then said I, What come these to do? Four builders as opposed to four destroyers. Okay? He spoke saying, These are the horns of the powers which have scattered Judah so that no man did lift up his head. They have caused such damage to reputation, so much damage to uh, the well-being, and have caused shame because of accusations that were made that made you ashamed to even lift your head because as, uh, let's see, I believe as Jeremiah puts it, uh, who is their God? You know, how did this happen to them? Who is their God? Where's the God that's supposed to save them? So God said it would come down to a very shameful, uh, confused, frustrated, small situation. You couldn't even lift up your head and say, well, look here, what's happened? Because I've had somebody right here tell me, this church has failed. You're done. You're finished. You're failed. Well, that makes you want to hang your head and say, oh, yeah, well, we've lost a lot of people. Had a lot of trouble. Isn't that kind of the mode we've been in? And we've been saying, why doesn't somebody do something about this? I heard somebody right here say that to me. What is, when's somebody going to do something about this? We're down to nothing. Okay? So, here it says that the builders then are coming to fray them or scare them or make them panic to cast out the horns of the Gentiles which lifted up their horn over the land of Judah to scatter or to destroy or to abuse and misuse it. Now, people who have done these things would say, we're not Gentiles, we're part of the church. Now, I don't know about that. How does God define it? Go back to Ezekiel 16, where God is describing Israel there And he says, you don't look a bit like Israelites to me. You look like you came from the, who was it, Amalekites or Canaanites, I forget now who he said, Hittites or somebody. You you look like Gentiles to me. You don't look like Israelites, and I'm going to treat you like Gentiles. Now, this may be people who were part of the church, but who are now acting like Gentiles, trying to destroy, to take down what others have built. Now, that's ungodly. God is not a destroyer. He's a builder. Satan is a destroyer. So, if you're destroying, then perhaps you need to look at where your influence is coming from. So, after he says, these are to be frayed and cast out, then he talks about Jerusalem being measured and fleeing the remnant coming to Zion And Christ says, I will come and dwell with you. Just as Malachi says in chapter 3, he will come suddenly to his temple and that he will measure them and teach them and guide them and so on. So this is talking about now. Now, is it right now? Who are the four? 
I looked around when I saw people destroying, and I said, maybe something needs to be done. What can we do? Because we were out from under the goodness and the graciousness of the civil government around us because some of these people had gone to the civil government and turned them against us. So here we are. What are we going to do? So I had a meeting with all the baptized male members of this congregation here at headquarters. There are four. That's all. Four. And I said, it has come to me that we may need to go to the civil authorities and those who have afraid us and tried to destroy us and file a lawsuit to take away the damage that has been done. And all four of us agreed that should be done. Now that was delivered in the forms of a site was filed several weeks ago with the court, but given as a summons to most of them yesterday and will be formally to their uh, lawyer today. And I think, based on what I saw last night, that there is panic and fear and anger uh, among them. And I think God is going to cause confusion among them. So is this today or not? <laughs> if the 4.30 just ended and the 65 of Isaiah 7 is about to end and the 70 years is up, it's time to bless the church and it's time to build the temple. It's also time to get rid of the enemies who would get in the way of us building the temple. Right? I think we're doing exactly what God would have us do. Now let's go to Jeremiah. Because here, I want to show you that at the end of 70 years, God is going to get rid of our enemies. Um, let's see, where do I want to pick this up? Uh, maybe verse 10. For thus says the eternal, that after 70 years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you, to causing you to return to this place. So the gathering of the same years that we're talking about here, end of the 70, in Zechariah and in Daniel and in Matthew 24, they'll return to the original promised land, to this place. For I know the thoughts that I think toward you, peace and not evil, and give you an expected end. Then shall you call upon me, and you shall go and pray to me, and I will hearken to you. And you shall seek me and find me when you shall search for me with all your heart. So he says, at the end of 70 years, you had better turn to me with all your heart. And isn't that what Daniel did? He immediately began to fast and to pray. And to ask for God's deliverance because he and his people had sinned. And the main thing <coughs> that Daniel prayed in that prayer was forgive me and forgive us of our sins and please deliver us. That was the main elements. I will be found of you. I will turn away your captivity and I will gather you from all the nations from where I have driven you. The whole church has been scattered and bring you again to the place where I cause you to be carried away captive. Where? Where? 
Headquarters was in the southwest United States, Pasadena. But the original promised land, yes, was in the southwestern United States, but in southern Utah and northern Arizona. Now, let's see what he says he's going to do when he starts gathering this remnant. Verse 17, Thus says the Eternal of hosts, Behold, I will send upon your enemies, uh, as applied here, where, where does it pick that up? Uh, I'll send on them the sword, the famine, the pestilence, and will make them like vile figs that cannot be eaten. They are so evil. I will persecute them with the sword, with the famine, and with the pestilence, and deliver them to be removed all over the earth, and they'll become a hissing and a reproach. They've not hearkened to my words, which I sent to them by the prophets. Remember Zechariah 1? very first thing Zechariah says is, Be not like your fathers... Don't ignore the prophets. Don't put them down. But that's what happened. So he says they're going to be taken up by a curse and sent into captivity. That echoes Jeremiah 11, where he says they will all, including wives, women, and children, be put to uh, the famine and pestilence and the sword, it says. What I wanted, maybe the one I want here, uh, is 30 and verse 16. Verse 15, Why cry you for your affliction that I just described? We've been afflicted here. We've been diminished. We've been decimated. uh, Just like worldwide was. And just as Israel was, we went from 150 at our biggest in this little group down to about 15 now. That's decimated. 90% gone, 10% left. I think there's a type there. Why do you cry for your affliction? Your sorrow is incurable for the multitude of your iniquity. Because your sins were increased, I have done these things to you. So we have gone through the same thing the rest of the church has gone through. And we have here gone through it in the same way. Now, notice verse 16, though. Therefore, all they that devour you shall be devoured. And all your enemies, all your adversaries, every one of them, not some of them, not a few of them, not most of them, every one of them shall go into captivity And they that spoil you shall be a spoil, and all that prey upon you will I give for a prey. Remember Proverbs 26 or 7 where it says, He that digs a pit will fall in it, or he that rolls rocks down will have them fall on him. What goes around comes around. Every one of them is going into captivity. For I will restore health to you. We'll get over this shame. Isaiah 54 says, I'll give you many children to replace those that you've lost. And I will heal you of your wounds, says the Eternal, because you call, they called you an outcast. Haven't they been calling us an outcast? Particularly me. Saying, this is Zion whom no man seeks after. We've claimed to be part of Zion, haven't we? And they say, ah, look at them. If that's Zion, that's the one that nobody wants true, right? Isn't that about where we are? Nobody wants us? Truer words were never spoken. That's where we are. But God says, I'll heal you of all this. 
Thus says the Eternal, Behold, I will bring back, or bring again, the captivity of Jacob's tents, turn it around, and have mercy on his dwelling places, and the city shall be builded upon her own heap. So it's talking about building Jerusalem again, right here. What we're about to do. God willing, and we're counted worthy to do so. And the palace shall remain after the manner thereof. And out of them shall now be thanksgiving and mercy, and I will multiply them, and they shall not be few. I will glorify them, and they shall not be small. Same as it says in Isaiah 54. Make the tent link, the cords of your tents longer. You've got a lot of people coming. Now go to verse 24. In the latter days shall you understand it, or consider it. So Jeremiah says right here that I am speaking of the end time, just as Daniel said, just as Christ said. Just as Zechariah 1 says, this 70 years is in the latter days. That's where we find ourselves today, is it not? The 70 years is at an end. And it's time that the work begins and that Babylon be destroyed very shortly now. Isaiah 7 and 8 have a little more to say about the timing of that. After Christ comes suddenly to His temple and begins to dwell with us, uh, by the time a baby from that point could say daddy and mommy, and before he could say daddy and mommy, Ephraim will be destroyed that it be not a people. And if that's in 2017 that Christ returns, let's say in the first month, maybe at Passover, the solemn day, uh, before a baby could say daddy and mommy from that point would put us in late uh, 2018 or early 2019 is where it would put it, that this financial collapse and the destruction of this country would occur. So it's talking about now. So let's go on to the book of Esther then. I don't, I've used quite a bit of time laying this background, but I think it's important because we need to understand that Esther, just like the rest of the Bible, is talking to us right now. The story fits. Now, we can make analogies here. The Jews have, others have. I've even tried to say who is the father, who's the son, who's uh, Vashti, who's uh, Esther, and who's Mordecai. And you can put the father and the son in there. You can put leaders and so on of the church. Uh, I don't want to go there. I don't know whether those analogies are valid. Anyhow, is it possible to say the Father uh, in heaven is typified by Ahasuerus and Christ by Mordecai? Uh, Gentiles, well, Mordecai wasn't a Gentile, but in this case the Father would be. <coughs> and Vashti, if you put her as ancient Israel, who was divorced, uh, was a Gentile, but then of course Christ did say in Ezekiel 16, you've turned into Gentiles. So there may be some validity to some of those analogies, but that isn't the point I want to make today. So let's just sort of set that aside and look at the story for the story's sake about what happened, to whom it happened, and some of the byplay that occurred here, and see how it fits the situation now 
because it was tied in, as we've just gone over for about 30 minutes, to the end-time church. This story was. Ahasuerus and his son Cyrus, Esther's son, uh, being prominent in the book of Daniel and having to do with the leaders of the Jews. Cyrus had to do with the leaders of the Jews. Now, when you read about Cyrus in Isaiah 44 and 45, it says that the end-time Cyrus will bring forth these treasures that came forth to Ezra and Nehemiah from that Cyrus, will be used to prove and show to the ends of the earth, from east to west, that God is God. (coughs) Now, that has to be an end-time prophecy. Because nothing has ever happened in the history of mankind along those lines. The treasures were brought out to prove to the whole world that God is God. (coughs) Now, God pretty well proved to the whole world in Noah's day that He was God. And only eight survived. But it wasn't through the bringing out of treasures. It was a different matter, different manner. Now, in this book, I think we will see the story of Worldwide Church of God, which was the former temple, as we have seen in Haggai and Zechariah. And then we will see it played out again in a different way. Now, let's remember our history in the church. Most of you can remember this. Uh, The state of California, the civil government, was primed by some Edomites, maybe Moabites, Agagite maybe, because we're going to find out that Agagite, Haman the Agagite, was an Amalekite and an Edomite. And I have said long ago that I felt Tkach and Raider were <coughs> Edomites, if you go into their background. So, those people conspired with the civil government of the state of California to come in to take a look at and to destroy Worldwide Church of God. They turned it over to a receiver and he did his best to find anything he could find wrong with the books in Worldwide Church of God, took over the tithes, took over the campus, the Uh, House of God, and the administration building. Took it all over. We were at a ministerial conference in Tucson when that occurred. And Herbert Armstrong remained in Tucson, and we started sending our tithes to him in Tucson to continue the work, if you recall. But there we had a case where enemies of the church went to the civil authorities to destroy the church and to turn it over to them along with its assets. Sound familiar? (laughs) Does that sound like a story you've seen rehearsed again just recently? We have had, right here on this property, people who decided that they needed to be made members of the church and ask a court of law, the civil authorities to make them members of the church, which shows that they are not, in their own words, make us members of the church. This is in their action in so many words. 
make us members of the church, judge, give us the church assets, and then dissolve the church and appoint a receiver to do all this. Doesn't that sound what I just described in Worldwide? Those were their literal words. And then down a little lower it says, Partition the land for the obvious reason of giving it to them so that they would have all church assets. They were doing with the civil authorities, they were using them to try to destroy this church and take all its assets. And they asked for all 110 acres at the time. All of it. It's exactly what happened in Worldwide Church of God with enemies from within who went to the civil authorities to try to destroy. Now, in the book of Esther, we have the setting. King Ahasuerus, who was over 127 uh, different areas, a huge empire, had taken over Babylon. Uh, no, at this point he hadn't. Uh, that was Cyrus who did that, his son. Uh, but he still had a huge uh, Medes and Persians empire. <clears throat> and he had brought all his people in to have a great big feast and then, uh, like, uh, like they do these days in Russia or China or even here, have big marching armies come by and have uh, balloons and flags and, and a big feast and a lot of wine and alcohol and let's impress everybody with how great we are. Just as the U.S. government tries to impress the whole world with how great we are. And that goes on down through uh, the civil government where the state likes to show how important they are. And then you get county officials who <laughs> like to impress with how important and how great they are. So it never ends as you come down through the governments of man that they're there to impress. They want power. They want glory. They want uh, influence. They want money. So that's the setting here. And then Vashti, the queen, uh, was over having a meeting with the women and trying to impress them with how great she was. And then the king said, oh, I want Vashti to come in because I want to show everybody how beautiful a wife I've got. My arm candy, we call it today. I want to bring her in and impress everybody with her. And so he sent word, and then the queen said, Nah, ain't coming. We're having here, and, and all you'd... I, you know, I'm, I'm just saying this. She might have said, all you'd try to do is impress your friends with how great you are by how good looking I am. She says, no, I'll just stay here and impress the women with how good looking I am and how powerful I am. <clears throat> anyway, this didn't go over well with the king. And as you go on down through the story, uh, some of Ahasuerus's lords and princes says you know if she gets away with that throughout your entire kingdom the women will just stand up and say nothing doing king we're feminists we're going to wear these little funny girly hats pink ones and we're going to do our thing because we're the feminist movement that's happening all across our land right now is it not don't obey your husbands we do our thing here in America because we're feminine and we're important. Same thing. 
going on throughout the land. And we even have some in the county government that would like to impress you with how powerful they are as women in the government. And they have persecuted us, pushed us, and removed our civil rights. And we're working on showing that that is the case. So they said, these women that won't obey, we've got to get rid of them. So they said, don't ever bring Vashti back. Get rid of her and bring fair virgins to the king that he might pick a better queen. And Ahasuerus says, you know, that's a good idea. She's gone. Forget her. Uh, I'm going to find me a fair young virgin and I'll make her queen. So then they began bringing these people. Well, Mordecai was a Jew and, and uh, he had this uh, orphan daughter, his niece, uh, whose father and mother were killed. And he had been taking care of her and doing the best he could for her. And she became a candidate to be one of the fair young virgins, but she was a Jew. Now, Mordecai says, don't you tell anybody you're a Jew, because Jews are looked down upon by certain people within the community. So she hid who she was, but she was brought forth with all the fair young virgins from all over for the king to make a choice. Now, Esther had no father or mother. Where are we today? Hosea tells us that God says, I will destroy your mother. Where's the church? Destroyed. Died about 1996. And her daughters have survived and God is choosing among the daughters. Where's her dad? Micah 4. Your king is perished, or your king is dead, your counselor is perished, he says. So we're without father or mother here as churches that are left. So Uncle Mordecai is going to take us under his wing at some point, and a choice is going to have to be made. In this case, it was Ahasuerus the king who was making the choice. So anyway, she was beautiful enough in her own right without putting on all the makeup and stuff just to go before the king as she was. And she had found grace and favor among the eunuchs that took care of the women. And uh, she was told, you're a favorite here. But at uh, chapter 2, verse 20, she still hadn't showed her kindred, kindred uh, as to who she was. Now, we have tried to be the same way. We're trying to be the daughter of Zion. We have come to Zion, but we have not been proclaiming that we are that daughter, the chosen one. We call ourselves a congregation of God. One of those congregations or organizations or houses of God that is here. It's up to God to make the choice, right? It's not up to us. When all these things happen that happen in Haggai and Zechariah, it will become very obvious who is who. Now, do I think we could be a candidate? Well, I do. I think he sent us out here as a preparation crew to prepare a place. And maybe we'll be considered. Maybe we'll be chosen. But I'm not going to say we're the chosen one. I'm not going to say it because it hasn't happened yet. And God, at His will, can choose somebody else, can't He? If we don't do what we're supposed to do. Now, that's why I keep telling you what Jeremiah said. When you see the 70 years is over and it's time for all these things to happen, turn to God with all your heart. And then He will hear you and He will begin to answer. 
How much over the last several decades have those who have been called out cried out to God and not gotten much of an answer? How many times have you and I? Maybe we'll get some answer here, some intervention there, but we don't get the kind of answers we want, do we? But he says, if you turn at the end of 70 years with all your heart, then you will call and I will answer and I will heal you and I will help you and I will get rid of your enemies. They're going into the tribulation. Now, can that be us? I believe it can. We need to do our part. Anyway, uh, there came here during this period of time uh, that two people had conspired against the king down in chapter 2, verse 21. Uh, And Esther had been made queen by then. And Mordecai knew of this conspiracy to kill the king. So he went to the queen, Esther, his niece, and told her, and then she went to the king and says, there's some guys here that want to get rid of you. So he looked into the matter and found that it was true, and they got hanged. So Mordecai and Esther saved the king's life. Now, chapter 3, after these things, did King Ahasuerus promote Haman, the son of uh, this guy, the Agagite, and advanced him and set his seat above all the princes that were with him. So, Haman had approached the king, Haman had licked boots, and Haman got promoted. And he became important in the kingdom. And... He was supposed to be revered and held in awe. But Mordecai the Jew saw through him and didn't like him, and he wouldn't bow and scrape when Haman walked by. So Haman began to have a hate for Mordecai, just as we had those in Worldwide come to hate Herbert Armstrong and want to get rid of him, and may ultimately even have actually killed him. Now we have some here on this property who hate me with a passion and want me gone and have tried to bribe me to leave, have tried to accuse, have accused me of sin or of, uh, of crimes that would put me in jail for life, murder, all false accusations, but they've come up with these things that they're trying to get me in trouble over. Now Haman came to hate Mordecai. So he started to do things, false accusations. None of, none of the things that he said about Mordecai were true. But he put them forth, and he hated all Jews, it goes on down to say. So not only Mordecai, but he spread it out to the whole congregation. Didn't I just say that in the action that was taken against me and against this church, they decided they hated all spiritual Jews who were here? and tried to get us all removed and destroyed and our church dissolved in front of our very eyes. So it's not just me they're against. They're against all of you. And after some of you helped deliver some summonses, you'll be more in the spotlight now than you were before. (laughs) They want to get rid of all of us. They want the whole place. Didn't Haman want to get rid of Ahasuerus and have the whole kingdom? Sure he did. 
That was his goal in the first place. Anyway, uh, it says in verse 6, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews who were, who were out the whole kingdom. He wanted to get rid of everybody, not just Mordecai. <clears throat> and then he went before the civil authorities. I'm going to use that instead of Ahasuerus here. He went to Ahasuerus, the civil authority, the king, and he says, you know, uh, verse 8, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Didn't say who they were. There's a certain people. And their laws are diverse from all people. You go before the county and say, these people aren't following county law. They're following somebody else, this certain people. <clears throat> God, if you will. Therefore, it is not for the county's profit to suffer them. If it please the king, let it be written that they may be dissolved, and we'll pay to get this done, if you'll help us. So, the county said, okay, uh, we'll require... Signatory proof will require uh, that they follow all the edicts of the county. And matter of fact, we'll turn that property over to you. We'll have a meeting with you and we'll show that you can own that property. And here's how you can do it. County officials. What did the king do here? He took his ring and handed it to Haman and says, I'm going to give you power over these certain people, whoever they are, just as the county started giving power to our enemies here to call them a congregational or an associational group instead of a hierarchy, and that here is how you can take over and own that land. Same thing. Now, it came on the 13th day of the first month that this edict went out to destroy the Jews. That's the day before Passover the day the edict went out to kill all the Jews. Isn't that interesting? Anyway, uh, Mordecai saw that this edict had gone out in chapter 4, and uh, he put on sackcloth and ashes and began to fast and have a bitter cry. And the Jews were fasting and weeping and wailing. Well, they were looking to God. But this story is between the civil authorities and those who are trying to destroy God's people. So God is kind of hanging back. Now, what did it say in Zechariah 1? He says, I want four of you to scare them and to cast them out. And he doesn't say there that he is going to do it, but those that he have put here as humans, he's going to use to do it. Now, they have gone to the civil authorities to try to get us dissolved and removed and to take over all our assets, and that didn't happen. Now, Mordecai was very upset that this had occurred. Now, notice what he says in verse 13 of chapter 4. Then Mordecai commanded to answer Esther... Think not with yourself that you shall escape in the king's house more than all the Jews. He said, I know you don't want to go to the king because of this edict, and Haman is trying to get us all destroyed, but if you don't do something, 
you're going to get destroyed too. Oh, I didn't think about it quite that way. And as the story turned out, there were many, many Jews who killed many, many of the king's servants at the palace. But it was the shoe was on the other foot by then. But here he's warning her, you better do something. For if you all together hold your peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house shall be destroyed, and who knows whether you are come to the kingdom for such a time as this. He says, you know, God may have put you where you are in order to save the Jews. So you had better do something. Now, this is in the face of Haman having tried to get all the Jews destroyed, just as our enemies here have tried to get this church destroyed, and put it in so many words. Now, if we could be a type here of Queen Esther, then it would appear we need to do something about it, or there may be another way that they attack us that they can overcome us entirely and get rid of all of us. Because they're trying. They're still going to the deputies and accusing me of murder and car theft and everything they can find to try to get me out of here so they can take over. They're still appealing even after the court case and the settlement and the TIC, they're still trying to get rid of me and you, this whole church, and take it over. So is it time for us to stand up and do something lest that happen? That's what Mordecai said. Then Esther bade them return Mordecai this answer. Go, gather together all the Jews that are present in Shushan, and fast for me, and neither eat nor drink three days, night or day. I also and my maidens will fast likewise. To whom? To God. But God is letting this play out on a church and civil basis, a Jew and Haman basis, with the civil authority Ahasuerus. Our enemies went to the civil authorities, the county. They've told me they're going to go to the state and to the feds and get me in jail. They've told me that. <clears throat> and then I will go into the civil authorities, which is not according to the law, and if I perish, I perish, but I'm going to do something. So four of us got together, all four of us baptized that are here, and says we better do something. Or they may take over and destroy us, and we'll be gone. See how the story fits? It's the exact same thing. So Esther then, chapter 5, went to the king, and she was a little concerned, just as I'm a little concerned as I approach uh, the civil authorities. We've accused them of removing our civil rights and our constitutional rights. But the approach I want to use is that they have used the county officials in a bribing, extortion, blackmail way to cause the county to do their will and to take this property and this church from us. And did not Esther approach him and say, ultimately, Haman has used you, O king, to destroy my people. 
you've been used. And after she carefully approached the king and had a banquet for her and Haman, they drank wine, and, and then she, she, the king says, I'll give you half the kingdom. What do you want, Esther? <clears throat> she says, I want to have another banquet tomorrow, and then I'll tell you what I want. So Haman went out of there. Oh, my. He was so excited because the queen had requested to have a meal and a banquet with just him and the king, the Holy Trinity, the three of us. <laughs> so he went home bragging, and he walked by Mordecai, and Mordecai gave him uh, a thumbs down or whatever Mordecai did. Didn't bow and revere him and say, Oh, great Haman. So he kind of passed that off and went on to his friends and family and said, Oh, my, I am going to be promoted. So in the meantime, the king was troubled. The civil authorities began to look into things, and, and he says, Something's haywire here. He says, What's been done for Mordecai that saved my life here a while back? Well, nothing, O king. So he says, Well, who's in the outer court? Well, Haman's out there. Well, bring Haman in here. So he said, Haman... If the king wanted to show great gratitude and honor someone in the kingdom and, and just really lay it on and, and give them the royal treatment, what should be done to that person? And Haman said, oh, I was just with the king yesterday and the queen, and he's got to be talking about me. So he says, bring out the, the king's own horse and bring out his own apparel and bring out the marching bands and everything that you would do if you were the king. Or the So does that show you what Haman wanted? He wanted to be treated like he was the king. He wanted to be in charge. And then the king says, that really sounds like a good idea, Haman. Bring Mordecai and do that to him. Oh my. <laughs> Whoo! And then, oh, in the, just before that, when he'd gone home bragging, I'm number one, just like some around here says, the sheriff's coming and he's going to run you out of here. They did. They told me that. You're going to jail. And then when they called the sheriff the other day, he rode by on a four-wheeler and raised his arm as high as he could raise it and put up his longest finger as he went by. About what's happening to me because the sheriff's on his way. I am going to be promoted and you are out of here. You're going to jail. And then the sheriff came and told him, nah, and told him to go away and leave us alone. Oops. But in the meantime, while Haman was still riding high and lifting his finger at Mordecai, his family had told him, build a gallows 50 cubits high. That's 75 feet up in the air. And get it ready for Mordecai to hang on after the queen tells you tomorrow that she wants you promoted to be third in the kingdom, high as me and you, O king. Now, the Persians did not hang a man on a tree with a rope around the neck like we do. They put a pointed stick up so high and they sat you on it. so that your rear end fit over the end of the stick. They impaled you. 
So they wanted this 75 feet high to crank up there and set Mordecai on it, and that would be his chair, if you will. Now, when Esther was given the choice on that second day at the banquet, she says, this evil Haman is the one that's caused all the trouble. I want him gone. So they hung Haman, or sat Haman, 75 feet up in the air on a pointed stick. (coughs) She got her petition. So what's happened here? Haman used the civil government to try to get rid of the Jews. Our people, worldwide, the Edomites tried to get the state of California, the civil authorities, to take over the church and give it to them. Now we've had people here go to the civil authorities, ask the church be dissolved, and its assets given to them, all of them. What did Esther do? She appealed to the civil authorities, to the king. She says, this is all unrighteous, it is unjust, these are false accusations. Mordecai is one of the good guys, he's the victim here. Haman's the one that's perpetrating this. These people have tried to make me out to be the aggressor and the one that was wrong, and them the victims. No, it's the other way around. You and I have been the victims of them going to the civil authorities and trying to get rid of us. Now it's our turn. We're going to go to the civil authorities and say, these people have used you. They've abused you. And they're doing it in order to steal land, which they have actually, in fact, managed to, by coercion and extortion and blackmail, accomplish. And we can prove it. Now, they have no proof of anything they've accused you and me of. And the deputies have seen through it. They said, there's nothing here. We, you know, he didn't murder his wife. They looked into it. He didn't steal a car. They looked into it. They didn't withhold land from you that you have a deed to have. But we have all the paperwork. Everything they've accused us of, they have no basis foundation or proof of just as the state of California and the enemies of the church of God didn't either and it got overturned and I believe through the God of heaven this will get overturned as well I don't know whether it will have to go through an appeal or two I don't think we have long enough to last for this to go through two or three or four years of appeals I think it will happen pretty quickly because I think the county officials are going to see when they look into it that they've been had and that they've been used and they're not going to like it. So where's the gallows? Now what Ahasuerus did was he says, I can't reverse my ruling that they can kill all you Jews because in the laws of the Medes and the Persians you can't overturn it once the law is made. So he said, okay then, we'll fix this. I will give you the power to go kill them. Now they've been given power to kill you, but now I'm giving you the power to take care of them. So they got themselves ready, and when the day came, by then, 
all of, a lot of their enemies were afraid of Mordecai because Mordecai had been put in the position that Haman had wanted. He had the blessing of the county at that point, if you will, or the king. And he was then going to be able to rule over. So those people who had been going to kill the Jews suddenly thought, wait a minute, I'm a little scared to do that because if I kill Mordecai's friends, he may come after me later. I better not do that. So when the day came, the Jews killed their enemies. Thousands and thousands of them. Because the king had given them the authority and the power to take care of the problem themselves. The king didn't send out his army. The county's not going to send out their army and get rid of our enemies for us. But if this story holds true, they're going to see through, they'll see how they've been used, how they've been abused, how these people have committed extortion, fraud and lies with no basis, and they're going to give us the authority to get rid of them. I don't mean kill them. That was a different day and time. It'll be in a different way. God said in Zechariah, in Zechariah 1, scare them and cast them out. And I believe that God working behind the scenes is going to do just that, but He's going to let this battle between the civil authorities and our enemies play out, and we are now going to the civil authorities, as Esther and Mordecai did, and pleading for their mercy, their understanding, and to look into this and see who's really responsible for all this mess that someone just day, yesterday told me they call it the as cane beds turns after the old uh, what is it soap opera isn't it sad that this little group is considered a soap opera that's sad it doesn't make you want to lift your head, does it? It makes you ashamed. Where is our God? He's there. If we will turn to Him with all our heart, He will hear and He will answer. He will help us behind the scenes make the moves to get rid of our enemies. Through civil matters, we will be able to scare them and cast them out. And then God is going to suddenly come to His temple and He is going to begin to bless those who turn to Him with their whole heart. And He will bring them then to flee from Babylon, which is about to be destroyed, the remnant and the two witnesses to build the temple and to build Jerusalem, just like Jeremiah, Zechariah, Matthew 24, Daniel, and Ezra tell us must be done. Now, I'm carrying the story on out beyond where it is today with our situation. But didn't Worldwide play out that way? Didn't Esther and Mordecai play out that way? Haven't we been halfway there now where they've gone to the civil authorities and tried to get rid of us completely and entirely and take everything we have? Half the story's done. Now, we have filed a complaint 
against their fraud and extortion and stealing of land. So it's two-thirds done. All we lack now is being shown how we can fray them and cast them out. And then the 70 years and the end of it can go on with the gathering of God's people to do what needs to be done. But you've got to get rid of the enemies first. That's what the Scripture says. That's what Zechariah says. I've got good and comfortable words for you at the end of 70. Get rid of your enemies, then the blessings will come forth. I believe that's the story. So let us turn to God with fasting and prayer, with all our hearts, and see what He does for us. That's our part. It's what Esther did. I'm going to fast. I'm going to pray. It's what Mordecai did. It's what all their friends did. We need to seek God with all our might. Just as Daniel, when he heard the 70 years is ending, Babylon has just been destroyed, it's time to build a temple and build Jerusalem, it scared him. And he got busy spiritually with God. That's our part of the story. So let's not fail in that, and God will do exactly what He said, and all our enemies, every one of them, are going to be taken away, as Jeremiah tells us.